The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Welcome to another special edition of the Pure Hoops podcast as my running mate, three-time NBA world champion Chicago Bull, BJ Armstrong, takes us back to some epic moments of his era, the 1990s. Back to the 90s we go. You know, a, a memorable moment that unfortunately had to happen to you and your Chicago teammates before you reached the top of the mountaintop was 1990 Eastern Conference Finals, Game 7 in Detroit. You're from Michigan. You guys, it's your rookie year. You guys can, can taste the finals birth. And obviously, Michael's been trying to climb the ladder since he got into the league in, in the spring of 84, in the 84 draft, and, you know, been knocked out of the postseason each year and made it a little further. The Pistons were the, the nemesis at that point. And, you know, people know the story about Scottie Pippen not being able to perform because of the migraine. What did that experience teach you guys, and what was your memory of 1990 Game 7? Eastern Conference Finals in Detroit. That was a very pivotal moment for everyone within the organization because that was our moment of truth. And that was the first time in my career, in my basketball career, high school, college, or pro, where I had faced a team and I knew they were better than us. And everyone in that locker room, whether they wanted to admit it then or admit it now, the Pistons were a better team than we were at that moment. Now, we may have had the better player, but they were a better team. And that was, and the reason that was so critical for me then was because that was the first time in my, in my, my life that I ever looked and I played against a player. I played against Isaiah Thomas, and I didn't care what I did. I was not going to be as good as Isaiah Thomas. And no one on our team at the guard position, was going to be able to challenge that. That was a really good team, and that was, a, that was important because for all of us, we couldn't say, well, we're going to, the, the referees beat us. No. We couldn't say that we played bad. No, we played well. They, they just played better. We couldn't say we didn't shoot the ball well. That's why we lost. No. We couldn't say that we weren't prepared. We were prepared. They were just a better team than we were. And we had to admit that. And I remember the only way I could solve that problem going into that summer was to know that I did my best. And my best was always going to be good enough as long as I showed up and, did my, and gave it my best. I didn't know and we didn't know. And everybody in that locker room, I remember I looked around just like everyone else looked around. We didn't know if we were good enough to beat the Pistons. Hmm. But I did know 
we lost like on a Friday or a Saturday. I remember we lost on a Friday. Nothing was said. We all looked around each other. And I remember the only thing that I could do at that point in my life, not in my basketball game in my life, was to show up on Monday morning and get to work. And I will never forget this. You can ask anybody who's on that team. None of us talked about it. None of us planned it. I showed up. Scottie Pippen showed up. Horace Grant showed up. Bill Cartwright showed up. John Paxson showed up. All of the players showed up. And that was the critical moment for all of us because we knew there was only one way we were going to beat that team, and that was to show up. We weren't going to be tougher than them. They were as mentally tough as any team in the league. They were more experienced enough. They had just as much as talent as us. They were just as well coached as us. But we knew we had to show up and perform and know that our best was good enough. And to everyone's credit, everyone's credit, you, that, that's a true story. We all looked at each other, and that whole summer, no one went on vacation. No one did anything. We all showed up. We had a great summer. And in 1991, the following year, we swept them. Yep. We swept them. So, and that, so is, the journey, that was the moment. So the, yeah. so the journey to the first championship, which is the first step in the first repeat, that didn't start in training camp or with September pickup. Training that camp, started, no. That started, that started three days. So, so you two, lost the Eastern Conference Finals on June 3rd, 1990. You're telling me three days later the journey everybody started. Was in it. Everybody was that's right incredible. there. That's incredible. That's great. Now, that's a true story. And, no, and, and the funny part was no one talked. We didn't like after the game, you know, guys are talking about, you know, hashtag grinding. No, nothing was said. It was complete silence. Complete silence in that locker room. There was nothing said on the bus. There was nothing said in the locker room. There was no, no, there was no cell phones. We were texting each other or calling each other. We all just showed up at the gym, and everybody looked around, and we said, you know what? Everybody knew what they had to do. And they, as they say, the rest is history. The rest is history because there was, that team was a well – they were a machine. And they knew how to play the game. They knew how to make the game ugly. They could win a slow game. They could win a fast game. They could win an isolation game. They could win on the road. And we all showed up and said, okay, if we're going to beat this team, we got to show up. Everybody's got to show up and play their part. And we were able to do it, and, and we went on. And, you know, eventually the, the organization won six titles. But we, we had a pretty good run. But that started two or three days after that after that loss. That's a true story. Throughout league history, there have been many storied arenas which served as incredibly difficult settings for the opposing team. A certain Eastern Conference foe had a very unique and challenging home court for BJ and the Bulls. Back to the 90s we go. Appropriately, this 90s topic this week is toughest and most hostile road arenas you played against played in wow. excuse me toughest and most hostile road arenas you played in let's move new york off to the side because we've talked a lot about the knicks and the garden and some of those battles lately so take us into another environment doesn't matter if it's regular season postseason east or west 
but take us into one of those really tough environments, what it was like and, and what that tone and vibe was for you with the Bulls. Well, they always the toughest environment is your toughest opponent. And, and at that point, the toughest environment was the Detroit Pistons because they were just such an exceptional team. And, you know, they, they were a very mentally tough team. Outside of the Knicks, I always thought which was a tough crowd was that Boston Garden crowd. And I always, you know, in the old Boston Garden, because I, I had a chance to play there, and it always looks fabulous on television. <laughs> but that place was a that place was a real dump, right? <laughs> you should have seen it, the it look on of the. You should have seen the look on my face when I finally got to tour it as a teenager. Yeah, like when I was up it, in it Boston. Was, oh my god, it was so disappointing, right? It was <laughs> like it looked great on television, and you know, you see all the championships and the fans running on the floor, and, and then you get to the locker room and you're like, you know. Every every game, every time I played there at the Boston Garden, the heat wasn't going to work in the middle of winter. The hot water, I'm sure they did this on purpose. It w- would never work in the middle of winter. And the cracks on that on the on the parquet floor were so big, you knew you couldn't dribble in certain places because you know, it was just like it was a dump. But it was the garden, it was the you know, the mystique and the fans, you know, they, 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 I call them, they're, they're a championship caliber fan. You know, they are, you know. And, and define that. So. Define I mean, that for our audience. Well, I mean, they, they, they're, 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 they've seen it all. You know, at that point, you know, the Bulls hadn't won one championship. I mean, look, how many, how many championships you guys got there with? 13, 14 now or something? or The Celtics have 17 championships. 17 when, championships. When you were okay. playing there, they had 16. Yeah, so I mean. You, you were at, you, you caused, you caused the, the beginnings of the lull. <laughs> so. <laughs> but there were, is... there were, there were, and, and, you know, people who know both of us know, you know, the Celtics are, are my team. I did not plant this with BJ. Um, yeah, no. There's there's no, a they, memorable they, they, no, they, there's a memorable game. Uh, it was ninety or ninety one Sunday afternoon. I'm watching it with my dad. It's Bulls Celtics. It goes to overtime. Everybody's playing at a high level, and you just feel the electricity through the television because of the way the crowd would react to the greatness of players. Do you remember playing at a high level? in that building and how they would react to that and be drawn to that? Because I, I felt that well, through the television yeah. set. Well, you, you look, I, I, the New York fans are very knowledgeable fans, but the Boston fans, look, they're, they're used to seeing greatness. And they respected greatness. And no matter if it was on their team or the other team, they respected greatness. So I always appreciated that. Um, I always, you know, appreciated how hostile and passionate they were in Boston. And, um, you know, and I remember in those times, I think we were still probably traveling commercial at those times. So I remember (laughs) when you would walk through the airport in Boston, you know, people were like, you suck, Armstrong. Larry is the great. I mean, I remember that. Like, (laughs) you, you, you check into the hotel, like. 
you know, everyone was a Boston fan, right? You know, that was part of the deal. I mean, I mean, I, I knew it. We knew it. We, you come to expect it. But at the same time, when you made a great play, they would respect you as well. So uh, the, the thing about I, I, I always loved about the Boston fans and, and even the New York fans is that there was a level of respect right. from the fans to the players. Now, that is what I felt. Now, did they say crazy things? Yes. But they would say crazy things, and then afterwards they would be like, hey, nice job, Armstrong. And I always respected that about them. Now, during the game, they, they were going to say all types of things. But when you did something and you played well, there was that level of respect, which to me is what made them special and made them different than all the other teams in the league because it was never personal with them. It was just like we're coming here to root for our guys. We're all Celtic fans. But they respected us, you know, and, and – you know, and that, that was part of the deal. You know, I respected them. They respected me, and we all went home. They did their job. I tried to do my job as best I could, and then we left it there at the game. So, But the Celtic fans were always great. I never got a chance to play there during the playoffs, but they were really into the game during the regular season, especially with, with so many legends on the floor. I mean, I remember as a young player playing against Larry Bird the first time and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish and, and the late Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge and, and all of those guys just walking into the garden. So to me, that was a big deal. Uh, I had a chance to see, you know, even though he at the time, you know, Larry was struggling with his, you know, his physical ailments that he had, you know, I, I remember Larry talking trash to me. And I, and I, I remember I told all of my friends, <laughs> you know, like Larry, he, he actually knew who I was, you know, <laughs> that, I, I thought that was great. You know, that's amazing. Um, you know, Larry, Larry asked me doing uh, I was supposed to rotate to Larry and I faked at him like on the wing. And at the next and then we get fouled or something. We had the free throw line and he started asking Kevin McHale. He wondered if I had cable television in Iowa. And I thought that was the funniest thing then. <laughs> like, he actually knew my name. And he was like, does this kid have cable television? Why didn't he come over here? And he's talking to Kevin McHale, and I'm just laughing at the free throw line. And I just thought it was the funniest thing to me that I was like, oh, wow, this guy talks trash. And he's great. So it was like, but that was, it was a different time back then. You know, you, you know, and I remember Michael saying, don't, don't talk back to Larry. That gets him fired up. So. And I was like, all right, out of respect to the guy, he can talk trash, and that's, and that's fine. And uh, so, you know, that's what you did back then. But, you know, today it's a different game. For as many memorable on-court moments as there were in the 90s, there were also some off-court that froze us all, one of which occurred in the fall of 1993. Back to the 90s we go. When, when Jordan retired the first time, it was in the fall of 93, coming out of the summer after the first three-peat. You guys had defeated the Phoenix Suns in six games to win the championship. And then in October, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was September or October, fall of 93, Michael Jordan says, I'm done with basketball. So what I would love for you to share is, you know, what was that like for, for you? And then 
how did your role change with the team along with how you worked with Phil, Scotty, and Horace and just how you guys banded together to then go ahead and have a really good season? Well, the thing I remember most uh, about that season was um, training camp was about to start. And, and back in those days, you know, you went training camp for the entire month. Um, and we were about to start training camp. And one of our brothers, you know, Michael said he couldn't play. And it wasn't no why or how can we help. It was just giving him the space that, that he needed, that his family needed at the time to sort through whatever was going on in his life. And there was a lot of things that were going on at that time. And I think the, the biggest thing for me was to be a good friend and to, you know, not only listen, but to hear what he was saying, because I couldn't imagine what that was like for him then. And having both of my parents still alive today to know what he was going through with him and his family and knowing how close he was with his with his parents. Um, so I wanted to be a good friend first and foremost. Um, the one thing I do remember about that about that team was it, it gave me the first glimpse of what uh, it meant to actually build a team. And, you know, there was so much talk, especially in the media, about, you know, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, you know, you guys were, you know, Michael and the Pips and Michael and the Jacksons because he was such a polarizing figure. Um, it was the first time that I had an appreciation for how the team was built. You know, we were clearly a team. I think we actually won more regular season games that year than we did the previous year, even though we won the championship. Uh, I think it was the third championship um in that, in that first three-peat. Yep. So I had an appreciation for how the team was built because I now I I, I remember thinking, now I, I understand the difference between a risk and a gamble. You know, you, you don't gamble with your franchise by just building it around one player. You take a risk knowing that that one player can push you over the top, but you build and you take a risk with building a team. And I always had an appreciation for Scottie Pippen, but Scottie Pippen perhaps had his greatest individual season that year. Uh, Horace Grant became an all-star that year. I became an all-star that year. And without question, and Phil and I, when, when we see each other, I, I always make, make sure to tell him that that was his greatest coaching season, I thought, that he's done. And he's won 11 championships. But that year... He really, because everything was on the cuff. There was no preparation. You don't take Michael Jordan out of your lineup, right? <laughs> and then suddenly yeah. still find a way to win 50-something games in this league. And then go on to advance. I mean, I think we won the first round. I think we took the Knicks to seven games that year. I can't remember the second you, round. or you, you, went, you went to seven, and, of course, the controversial yeah, foul I mean, call to put Hubert Davis on the free throw line. I so, mean, I mean. He could have been. In the conference finals against the Pacers. So I, I, and it, that, so I had an appreciation, and that was my first fascination with how to build a team because how do you continue to lose a player like Jordan and still win 55 or something, whatever we won that year, I can't remember, 57 or something games we won, whatever we did 55 that year. And 55 and 27. So how do you take Jordan off your team? So, you, so let's just take 
the best player off of every team and then still say that team is going to win 55 games. And a, a, a player like Michael Jordan, this guy was averaging 32, 33 points a night. So to me, that was the first time I became fascinated with how to construct a team. How to construct a team because now, you know, you had players that were contributing and doing things. And I became fascinated with style and systems of play. And I, and I really learned how to win in this league because – it's not about offense. We always talk about offense, but the triangle offense, if you will, gets a lot of headlines of what is the triangle offense. And I, and I always laugh when I when I people ask what is the triangle offense, and I always laugh when Phil Jackson and he must have, and we, you know from time to time, you know I've never I've never actually pinpointed him on this, but I know he understands this because he you know he's. You know, he's been teaching the triangle and uh, for, for years. The triangle offense is, gets a lot of publicity for the offense, but really it just gives you the defensive balance that you need to be consistent on both ends of the court if it's yep. executed properly. So, you know, of course the offense is hard to learn because everyone's just – the offense is what most people are focused on. But if you get stops on the other end – you never run the triangle offense. That's what people don't realize about the triangle offense. We played defense so hard because we didn't want to run the triangle offense because we were always playing advantage basketball, two-on-one, three against two, four against three. We were always playing advantage basketball because we always had the defensive transition to go from the transition from offense to defense. We were always in the right position, which gave us a huge advantage to be consistent. You guys were third in opponents' points per game that season. I, I, like I, said, I don't know the numbers, but what I do yeah. know is that the triangle offense is good if you want to be consistent at something. And you have to be consistently good at take, get taking away easy baskets or uncontested shots on the other end if you're going to be good in this league, right? The best teams in this league are going to have – they're going to contest the other shots and they're going to take away easy transition buckets on the other end. So – to me, that's the beauty of the triangle offense or any offense system that allows you to have a good, a good transition defense. And that's when I began to really learn the game because Jordan was so good. You know, I have always said this um, because I firmly believe it then and, and even more so now is Michael is perhaps the greatest mistake eraser of all time. He just erased all the mistakes that right. you can make because he was so good. He was that good yeah. of a player. You're, you know, I don't know if he's margin, the greatest player. Your margin for things. error. Yeah, my margin, margin for, for error. margin for error without him is minute. Yeah, yeah. My margin, I could be down. <laughs> Look, if we were within 10 points in the last four minutes of a game, we were going to win that game because he was going to score every single time. In the last four minutes of a game, Michael Jordan was going to do one of three things. He was either going to score two, get fouled, and go to the free throw line and make two, or get an N1. So if you didn't play perfect basketball in the last four minutes against Jordan, we were going to be plus 10 in the last four minutes of a game with him on the floor because that was his margin of error. He was that good of a player. I We never concerned ourselves well, matter whether we were going to score in the last four minutes of a game. Now, who else could go on the floor and do that? We didn't go into a huddle going, well, we got to get this score. No. When we score, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> It was a, that was a no-brainer for us. That's a no-brainer for him when he was playing at his height where he was that good in the last four minutes of a game 
he was going to score, which put so much pressure on the other team because they knew they had to be perfect to beat him. So losing him and having to play and figure that out just gave me a whole understanding and view of the game and how you build a team and how do you play and how do you do things. And, you know, the Knicks were a great defensive team. But, you know, I have I had a better understanding on how to defend without Jordan than with Jordan because this guy was going to figure out how to steal the ball or do something that was incredible, which you acknowledged it was incredible. But he, he was just that good that made us – kind of took us along for the ride because he we were already a good team but with him we were an exceptional team because he was that much better than everybody else not only in the league but you know on the team he was just able to do things that the rest of us couldn't do thankfully as history shows air jordan was not done taking flight as bj takes us back to another memorable moment centered around mj and the bulls Back to the 90s we go. Today's 90s segment was just an anniversary of this earlier in the week. March 19th, 1995, Michael Jordan announces, I'm back, returning to the Bulls from his first retirement where he uh, retired in the fall of 93 following the first three-peat. So, BJ, for you, that was your, your last season with the Bulls. You're MJ's teammate. You're his friend. What was it like for you, the team in Chicago, when MJ announced, I'm back in 1995? Well, you know, everything that happened so abruptly you know he retired abruptly you know there was a lot going on not only on the court but off the court uh at that particular time and the biggest thing for for me is just to be a good friend and we all wanted to be a good friend because we were losing a friend you know the basketball player the michael jordan that everyone saw i mean that was that was the obvious but behind the scenes you saw someone who was struggling with things that were swirling on around him at that time, at that particular time with his family and his personal life. And that was the one part that, you know, no one could really see, but other than the people that were close to him and behind the scenes. And um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, you know, not, you know, not, I wasn't a fan of Michael. I was a friend. And uh, to this day, he's still a friend. So, you know, I, I was just always concerned about him and how he was dealing with that situation. And I, I remember when he retired, um, I remember we all sat there and, and I remember we all talked about the two most dangerous things that a person can have, free time and money. And he had an abundance of both now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And that was that was the theme of the uh, of the meeting. Like, what are you going to do with all this free time? And clearly you have enough money you can't spend. So it's going to require you have a, you know, it's going to require something more of you than, you know, most don't have to deal with. Uh, And he was very aware of that. He was he was very keen on, you know, his surroundings and his environment. Uh, When he came back, I I remember he called me 
Uh, I think he had just came back like sometime in the midwinter or sometime, and he told me he was in town, and we used to always go eat breakfast at this place called, I don't even know if they're still in business, called Baker Square. And we would go, and he was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, hey, I'm about to go to practice. What are you doing? And he was like, let's go to breakfast. I was like, oh, you're in town. He was like, yeah. So we went to Baker Square. We had our normal pancakes, and we were just sitting there. And, and uh, he was like, what do you think if I came by practice? Do you think it would be a distraction? I was like, no, man, everyone would love to see you. And it'd be good for us. It'd be good for the morale of the team. Everybody would be great to see you. And he was like, no, I don't want to be a distraction. I don't want, you know, cause a stir. I was like, why don't you just come by and just say hello. And everybody, it'd be good for you to be in the building. It'd be good for you to be around the guys. And he came by practice. And uh, we walked in together and we came by. And as I was getting tape, you know, we, we couldn't help ourselves. We started talking trash. And one thing led to another, and suddenly we went from having breakfast to just coming into the building to all of a sudden saying, let's play a one-on-one. And I was fully dressed for practice, and he still had his shoes on, and we started playing a one-on-one. After, hmm. he, he's, after we started playing one-on-one, I'm ready for I'm – I'm playing against him – like we start, you know, first it was like a joke. Ah, uh, now you can't guard me, whatever. I was like, ah, you old now, you can't play, da da da. And we're just talking. We go from playing to like a full lather. And when we look up, we realize that everyone was just kind of watching because we were playing, and he was like right back. He was just he just fell right back into his rhythm, right back there. Everyone was great to see him. For better or for worse, I lost that game, Eric. I, I, I admit that. I'm not happy about <laughs> that, that. That I was, lost that, that, game. that was, that was going to be one yeah, of my I did lose that game, and I'm still upset about that. I lost to a man <laughs> as a professional, and he was still in his street shoes. <laughs> but if I had to lose to one, Michael would be the person, yeah. right? He um, was still trying to hit. He was still trying to hit off speed pitches. So I know it was. Is, uh, so my question is: Was that the beginnings of? the return to the floor that happened in March of 95. Was that the first step? I don't step? know if that was the beginning, but I certainly, I think he realized that, you know what? Hey, you know what? This is, this. I mean, that's the place he built, you know? I mean, I just think he probably needed us as much as we needed him. And, you know, it wasn't a day that we didn't you know, miss him or think about him because, I mean, he's, he, Besides being a wonderful basketball player and an incredible, you know, what he's achieved individually, Michael was a, was a great teammate. And he was always fun. He was always one of the guys. And he took pride in being a good teammate. So, and we all felt comfortable with him. He felt comfortable with us. And we knew that he was Jordan and he had his things to deal with, but he respected us as, you know, guys on the team. And it worked. For whatever reason, it just worked. And it worked for, you know, the organization understood. It was just an understanding that we all knew. We all kind of grew up together, you know. It wasn't like he came in as Jordan. You know, he grew into that. He grew into mm-hmm. what he needed to do as a star in this in this league. And we all kind of grew into – we knew what it, when it meant to be role players in this league, you know. Stars had to be stars and role players had to play their role. But we all had to be great in order for us to have a great team. And I think that was the understanding that we had and the balance that we had. 
uh, for people who so played how, in Chicago. So how did he how did he share with you guys before it went public? How did he share, or how did the conversation go down? I'm coming back. Well, I, I, if I remember correctly, I. I, I, I I think what we did was I think me, him, Phil, and Scotty, I think Horace, Bill, and all of the guys. Well, Horace, who had no, played. Horace, Horace was gone. Was Horace is gone. Was Horace gone? It was Horace gone. Yeah, Horace was gone. Horace was remember, with Orlando. Yeah, Horace had left. That's right. Um, but I remember all of us kind of just talked, and I remember thought, you know what? Hey, if if something, if you want to do it, um. We're still here. But I think the, the, the brilliant part of all of this, the brilliant part of all of this is that, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, continued to pay him even though he was out. Because he all, mm. I don't know if he always knew that he was going to possibly come back, but he always gave himself, and I said, if he ever wanted to come back, you'll always have this, you know, this will, you'll always have an opportunity. So the genius in all of this was, to me, Jerry Reinsdorf always gave him the opportunity to come back home whenever he felt it was time for him because of what he was dealing with. That, to me, was thinking ahead. And we were glad for our friend to come back. We were just happy to see him back playing and talking and doing the things that we've all come to grow and to you know to know him and over the years that we all grew as young people back then but the genius of all of this was that jerry kept that option open for him yep and when he was ready he did come back and i and i remember we just kind of talked about it he, he thought about it i don't think he said he what he was going to do but i think we kind of just found out we knew without really knowing but i think it was it was you know, we thought it was pretty cool at that time, you know, that he sent a fax, which I thought was like was cutting edge technology back then. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I think it would be comparable today. Yeah, I think I think it was comparable now to like sending a tweet or something, right? Or social media. That's, but I remember that's that's, that's amazing. So so la last 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 question before we wrap it. What what was the reaction like in Chicago when it was official? Do you remember what that excitement yeah, well, was? Well, it went like? from yeah. Well, the the media was back, the excitement was back, and you know the one thing that I remember most was how his attitude had changed, his appreciation for like the small things of just being around the guys, being on the bus, uh, going out to dinner, those things. Which, you know, you just kind of going into a routine. You know, you're always around each other. You just get into the routine. You just kind of, like, become mundane of just. But it was like he had a new appreciation for all of the things that he experienced in, 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 in baseball. And it brought, like, a fresh energy or a positive spin on something that we had just, you know. You know, you just grow so tired of getting on another bus, another hotel, another per diem, hmm. another practice. Where he was just like, you know, he had a he had a a new look on life, if you will. So that new energy uh, was was great. Uh, the one that you know I think was kind of weird for all of us. He wore like forty five, I believe, when he first came back, or something like that. I yep. think he wore like a yep. Different he wore forty five. So that was he, that was kind of weird to see him 
in that number, you know, you're passing the ball ahead to 45 instead of 23. But other than that, he, he just had a new spirit about him. And I think it took some time for him to get in what we call basketball shape. You know, obviously he was a phenomenal athlete, but, you know, when you take that much time off, you're not going to just jump right into it. But he was he showed spurts, you know, he showed spurts, you know, whether it was in the garden when he had 55 points and he showed spurts. But it just wasn't enough time that he had to get himself into that type of shape where he could just dominate a game for 48 minutes plus. And he just needed the summer to kind of work that through. And then they went on uh, to win three more championships. But other than that, it was it was great to have him back in the city. And it was like, you know, uh, everyone was so excited when he came back. And, you know, the, you, could, you could feel the energy in the air. We hope you've enjoyed your trip back to the 90s with the Pure Hoops podcast. Special thank you, as always, to my partner, B.J. Armstrong, producers Mike Lieber and Bruce Bernstein, editor Ben Wolfen, voiceover artist Darlene Charles, and the entire Pure Hoops media team. Be sure to check out all of our weekly shows, The Mike Wise Show releasing on Mondays, Catch and Shoot featuring Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko on Wednesdays, Bucket Sports and Blocks featuring Monica McNutt dropping Thursdays, and of course, the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and myself each and every Friday. Have a great weekend, everyone. This season will be here before you know it. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.